Good morning, Three Rivers. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us today. And thank you for uh, the way in which you manifest that to us in goodness and kindness and provision and sustenance. You take care of us and we receive that with grateful hearts. And so we say thank you. Lord, pray this morning your blessing upon this time. Holy Spirit, we pray you would do what Jesus said you would do in your ministry of guiding us to see more of Jesus and counseling us into the truth and reminding us of all that the King, the Master, the Lord... Jesus himself has taught us. Pray you pull that off this morning. We pray you do your work. I pray you tear down any distraction, any barrier that would keep us from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been studying through this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the five solas. And uh, before we jump in today, Christ alone, I just want to remind you, on November 12th, uh, the Kingston campus will be reuniting with us. And so I want you to be reminded that the, they reach some people, some new people. And so they're going to be folks you know. And, and as someone said last Sunday, is it appropriate if I cheer that they're rejoining us? And I said it's absolutely appropriate that you cheer because they're our people. But there's some new people. And here's what I want you to do. On November 12th, you are all by default a greeter. Okay? And so what I want you to remember, all right, hospitality and evangelism are tied together. They are interlinked. A hospitable spirit is an evangelistic spirit because you know what you're doing? You're inviting people to the kingdom that you dwell in because of Jesus. And if you aren't hospitable toward us, you'll be hospitable to people who need Jesus. Those two are tied together. So here's what I want you to do. On November 12th, when you see Kingston people coming in, we're going to be touring those new people around so they know where to go. Stick out your hand. Shake it fiercely and say, welcome home. We're glad you're here. I am. And say whatever your name is and say, welcome. I'm so glad you're back. Can you do that for me? If you're willing to do that and you heard what I just said, would you raise your right hand? Awesome. Some of you need to repent and believe the gospel and that's okay. That's all right. But thank you for being willing to do that. That's going to be a great Sunday. And so if you're a visitor today, we want to make sure that you feel welcome and that you're, you're welcome to be here. And we're very glad you're here. There's, uh, there's people here that are very glad you're here. So welcome. Thanks for being here. And uh, we're very, very glad you're here. We preach from the Bible. And so today we're going to be all over various texts as we study the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The, the, uh, particularly the fourth sola which is Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. This is probably the easiest sola to study because it's, it's as it says, Christ alone. And so the Scriptures testify to this very clearly. And so what we're going to do today is take a look at what the Scriptures say, how the Scriptures support Christ alone. We're going to contrast that with what was practiced before Luther brought some things to uh, the church's attention. And then we're going to look at how we can obey Christ alone. So let's start with, with, with where things were. As Luther began to teach, uh, through Romans in particular, as he began to teach through Romans, and as he began to teach through the Psalms and various books of the Bible, what he began to note was that there were very, very many inconsistencies between what the Bible was teaching and what the church was practicing. There were conflicting teachings. The councils said this, the Pope said this, but the scriptures clearly said this. And there was this disconnect in Luther's heart and his mind. And indulgences, as we've hit over the past few weeks as sort of a side note, were just really, the, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't the chief thing. In particular, I, I gave you for your notes this morning on the blog, MitchJolly.com. 
multiple doctrines about Mary, like her divine motherhood, um, her perpetual virginity. And I define these things for you here. You can I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because, well, we're Protestants, right? The immaculate conception, which was huge because the teaching was that Mary was conceived in such a way that she escaped original sin. So she was born innocent. Right? And by the way, just so you know, it is not a Christian doctrine that humans are born innocent of sin. That's a Muslim doctrine. Okay? It's Islamic. It is not Christian. You need to know that. Okay? The, the Bible teaches that we are born sinners. Okay? You understand that? You got that? That is a uniquely Christian teaching. But they couldn't figure out how Jesus, the eternal Son of God, sinless in every way, was born by a sinner, right? So they created the Immaculate Conception, that she was born in such a way that she avoided original sin, thus being capable of having Jesus. And then the assumption of Mary, that taught that at her death, Mary, body and soul, was taken up in glory to be with Jesus. Like, when we die, right, your body goes in the dirt, and your your soul, right, goes goes to be with Christ, right, and whatever that... that intermediate state is before the resurrection and we're all reunited with Christ in the eternal kingdom. But they taught that Mary assumed there was an assumption. Her whole body and soul went up to be with Jesus, which logically led to this next thing that is fairly recent. Uh, And you can see the stuff there. And basically it is to begin to teach Mary, particularly, uh, as uh, the one who is a co-redemptrix a mediatrix with Jesus. So, assist Jesus in redeeming humanity and mediates on our behalf with Jesus. You add that to confession as a way in which your sins are taken care of in the Mass. All these things were considered to be effectual for salvation. That is, they made salvation happen. Luther found in his study of Scripture no such scriptural evidence and was, therefore, by his conscience which was informed by Scripture, moved to do something. Thus, he penned the 95 Theses and invited everybody to a public debate. And so, one of the great byproducts of this work of the Reformation are these five solas, right? And so, we've seen, uh, we've looked at sola scriptura, which it all hinges there, right? If there are other final authorities other than the Bible, then you can justify perhaps some of those teachings, but the problem is, is Luther studied the Bible. He determined that the Bible was clear. And I think if you read your Bible, you can determine also that the Scriptures themselves teach what their authority is. And so it all hinges on Scripture alone. So if Scripture is our final say, then we have to come by grace alone and faith alone. And then we come to Christ alone. So our question today is, what do the passages of the Bible teach regarding Christ alone? And what exactly does it mean to believe in Christ alone? Let's jump in. First point, we start here really all the way back in the book of Exodus. Yahweh alone is the basis of Christ alone since Jesus himself is none other than Yahweh. Right? So Yahweh alone, or you can say, and I'm using that language because that's the Old Testament's language, Yahweh, the Lord, God alone is the basis of Christ alone, since Jesus taught very explicitly that He is the God of the Old Testament, right? Example, uh, Exodus 20, verse 2 to 3. And, and, and let me just say this, as you're, if you've got your Bible, you're okay to flip over. If you don't know where Exodus is, go all the way back to the beginning. It's Genesis and then Exodus, right? So Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 to 3. When we're talking about 
God alone, there are two senses to that. God alone in the sense that there are no other gods. And that's really kind of where we're going to focus this morning in the passage that I gave you. But also in the sense of God alone saves apart from our outward expression. Okay, so we talk about Jesus alone, Christ alone. We're talking about the fact not only is are there no other gods, but we're also talking about Jesus alone apart from any effort I bring to the table. So there are two components to Christ alone. Are you tracking with me? Everybody, you following? All right. And so the part about Jesus plus none of my efforts, right, is, is going to be explicit in the passages we look at. But I also want you to understand, too, that it's also Christ alone because there are no other gods. There are no other options, and we're going to see that from this passage alone. So the foundation of what the, the New Testament particularly teaches is that God alone, Yahweh alone, is the very foundation of Christ alone. Since Jesus claimed He is Yahweh, He is that God. So if you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 to 3, He says, I'm Yahweh, your God. If you see in your Bible, all caps, L-O-R-D, like it's all caps. That's English translation's way of letting you know that's the divine covenant name of God, I am, Yahweh. Okay, So that's just a little Bible study note. So, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Pretty clear, pretty explicit. But let's... We think that God was affirming that there were other gods and they were just not to have any of them before him. Let's take a look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 to 7. Now, I'm not going to read all of it. You can go back and read all of it. But in Isaiah 45, 1 to 7, God is speaking to Cyrus, who is not a believing king, that God used as an instrument, as an instrument to train his people, to bring discipline on his people. He's speaking to Cyrus, and he even says in verse 4, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is a beautiful picture of the great sovereignty of God over all things. And that here's this king who doesn't know the Lord. And God gave him his name and has authority over him, even though he doesn't know him. And here's what he says in verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So the very basis of Christ alone is the scriptural basis that God alone is God and there is no other. Then that God plus nothing is the way to salvation, right? And then just so you have a clear reference that Jesus claimed to be this God who spoke, Isaiah 45, 1-7, and also gave us Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Here's what Jesus says in John 8, 58-59. Now this is after an elongated argument with the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now verse 59 only makes sense if Jesus meant what you think He means. Why would they pick up stones to stone Him for blasphemy? Which is the only reason you would stone somebody. Like blasphemy or being caught like in adultery like the woman in John uh, in the John 7, right? Why would they pick up stones to throw at Jesus when He said, Before Abraham was, I am? Because the clear implication is, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who made Abraham. 
And, and either Jesus was right, and they must bow and worship, or He did commit blasphemy and probably ought to be stoned to death. These are about your two options there, right? And so Jesus clearly, clearly sets him out, Himself out to be the one through whom all things are, because He alone is God, and as a result, He alone is the one who can save Plus nothing I bring to the table, right? And then John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's no doubt that the New Testament leaves us with this clear understanding that Jesus taught that he was the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament made it clear that he alone is the only one that can save because there are no others. Everybody making sense? You tracking? So, Christ alone is built upon the foundation that God alone is God and there are no others. And that He alone can bring salvation. That's pretty good evidence, don't you think? How about another one? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. Jesus alone is the sole mediator of the new covenant. All right, Jesus alone is the sole mediator of the new covenant. First Timothy two five to six, and I also have a, an even cooler passage here. Which one of the things I wrestle with in Christ alone is all the passages just deserve like an hour apiece, and I have like thirty five minutes. So we're going to give them a lick and a promise, and trust that the Holy Spirit will guide you as you go back and study the passages. But Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the sole, complete, only, only mediator of the new covenant. First Timothy two five to six. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what, do, what, what does the scripture teach about Jesus? Jesus has, are there multiple, is Mary a mediator with Jesus? Not as, as scripture alone is our final authority, right? If the scriptures are our final authority, then Paul made it clear to Timothy that Christ alone is the mediator for us. Now what about Hebrews 9, 11 to 15? But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, this is awesome, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So what's the picture He's setting for us here? Jesus didn't go into the temple set down here on earth. That's a copy of the one that was shown to be built because the real one that he was shown, like that, that Moses got the picture of that was supposed to be built, is the real one in the very presence of God. And Jesus didn't go into this one down here. He went into that one. And he didn't enter with the blood of animals. He entered by his own blood. You got it? So, so Jesus is a little bit step up from a calf and a goat. And where he entered is a little bit of a step up from the copy that's down here. He entered into heaven itself. Verse 12, And he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but means of his own blood. Thus, thus, because by his own blood, because he is the eternal God, because there is no other, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? How much more? In other words, if God condescends enough to pardon based on some ashes and blood, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the, not a, but the, Definite article, the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So in other words, Jesus alone is the mediator of this new covenant that God made, whereby He would take sinners, take out their cold, dead, unbelieving heart, put in a new heart that loves Him and wants to walk with Him, and He'd put His Spirit in them and cause them to walk in His way. Jesus is the one who puts that into place, and He does it alone. Jesus also alone is the object of saving faith. Now, this is super important because two weeks ago we talked about grace alone and faith alone. You guys remember that? Grace alone and faith alone. I want you to remember, faith is the work of grace that is the work of God so that that faith may rest in the one who can actually save. I wrote this down for you, and I'm going to just stick on my words here so that I don't mess that up because it's a little bit of a complicated sentence. But it's important. Faith is the work of grace that is the work of God so that that faith, because you need to understand, there's saving faith and there's just faith. You've got to understand, people exercise faith all the time. Non-Christians exercise faith. Everybody in this room right now is exercising faith. I'll give you an illustration in just a minute. Right? People of other religions exercise faith, but their faith isn't saving faith. Which is why faith is a big word in spiritual, in the spiritual world, right? In the spiritual realm. Just have faith. Like you, you, if you watch any kind of award show, people talk, just have faith. Well, have faith. Here's the problem. Have faith in what? What you've got to remember is faith doesn't save. Jesus alone saves. Faith is an instrument Jesus gives to bring evidence to the fact that He saves people, but faith is not what saves. Jesus saves. Alright? You, you, so, so follow. So, faith is the work of grace that is the work of God, so that that faith, what faith? The faith that is the work of God, right? So that that faith may rest in the one who can actually save. Jesus saves, and faith is His instrument. Notice the language. His instrument, not your instrument. Faith is not your instrument. So this whole idea of just have faith. Well, how am I supposed to have faith when I don't have faith? It's an impossibility. You can't have faith unless God gives you that faith by His grace. That's whole Ephesians 1 to, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. You remember that two weeks ago? Right? So Jesus saves and faith is His instrument and faith's object is Jesus who is its author and giver. Faith is not the work we do to get saved. You've got to remember that. You don't do the work of faith to get saved. It is not faith that saves. But it's the object of that faith that saves. And who do you think is the object of saving faith? Take a guess. Christ alone, right? Christ alone, Jesus alone. This isn't contradictory to grace alone and faith alone. Grace comes from God to give the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 presupposes you're paying attention to all the in Christs that he repeats almost 30 times in those two chapters. Because faith has an object and that object is Jesus. Illustration. Every single one of you, yep, I don't see anybody, everybody in this room is sitting in some kind of chair. 
It's not your trust in the chair that makes the chair stand up. Is it? It's not your trust in the chair that makes the chair stand. It's the engineering and the quality of the chair that holds you up, not your faith. You assume somebody did their job well, didn't you? You didn't think about it. You didn't think, I wonder if the person who welded these, this metal frame together did a good job. I hope they came in sober that day. Hope there's no poor welding done here, right? Your faith is exercised as you place your weight on the chair. But that faith does not hold you up. The chair holds you up. The object of your faith, in this instance, is a chair. It's the object of your faith that saves, not faith itself. Faith in Jesus is the expression that one is trusting in Jesus to save them. Now, our, our first point of obedience is going to help bring that into some clarity. All right? It isn't faith that saves you. Faith is Jesus' instrument by which you exercise trust in Him that He will save you. Jesus alone is the one who can satisfy God's anger righteously at man's sin. Romans 3, 1 to 26. Again, there are volumes. There are 500 page research documents written out of the original language on these five verses out of the book of Romans. Okay? So we're not going to do it justice this morning. But I want you to see that clearly the Scriptures help us to see that Jesus alone is the one who satisfies God's rightful anger at sin. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's this passage that totally pillaged Martin Luther's heart. You can read there. I'll I'll read you some quotes from Luther when we do Luther on All Saints Day. Where he talks about coming to the conclusion of Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.21-26. Where he makes this statement, I altogether felt born again. I love that. Here's this monk, right? He's doing everything in his power to just obey. He's crawled up the steps to the Pope. He's kissed every step on the way. And he got to the top and thought, what if this isn't true? Wrestled with his own sin hard. There's no way I can be right before God. And he read this passage. And as he studied on it and meditated on it, he said he got to the end and felt I was altogether born again. It's because this passage will save your butt. This passage will save you. If you read this, this passage saves people all the time. People get a Bible for the first time and they read through it and they come to this passage and story after story on the field. People read this passage and come back and go, I met Jesus in that passage. Because there's no other passage in the Bible that so clearly articulates man's sin, the problem, and God's solution. And it's just right here. Here it is. You ready? The righteousness of God has been manifested. That's God's complete rightness has been clearly Put on display apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness. So the law bears witness to it. The law preaches the gospel. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in, in who? In who? In Jesus. So what's the object of this saving faith? Jesus, right? The righteousness of God. God's rightness. How? Through faith in Jesus. For who? All who will believe. For there's no distinction. In other words, Jesus save anybody. To save anybody when their faith is in Him. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Who sinned? 
Everybody, right? And have fallen short of the perfection of God. And they are justified by His grace. We studied that already. As a gift, right? Grace is God's gift. And God gives faith through grace. It is His gift so no one can boast. Romans or Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Through, how does it happen? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Have you read anything about your effort in there yet? Have you read anything in there about anybody else's effort in there on your behalf? Nothing. Nothing. God's gift, God's grace in Jesus. Now verse 25. Whom? Who's the whom? Christ Jesus. Y'all know your grammar. It's okay. I know we're mostly white church, but you can talk in this. This is good. One day we're not going to be. Praise Jesus. That day is coming. Lord Lord Jesus. Because I want people to talk back to me. I swear he gave, he gave me a dark soul and gave me... Gave me peach skin. So talk to me. It is okay. Alright? It's okay. Alright? Who is the whom? Jesus is the whom. Whom God... This is huge, guys. This passage, if you're not saved, it will save you. It really will. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's a big word. That P word. What does it mean? It means the satisfaction of God's right anger at sin. So Jesus satisfied God's anger at sin. Did you satisfy God's anger at sin or did Jesus? Jesus did. So what do you think you bring to the table? Zero. We think Mary brings to the table. Zero. By the way, this is really good news. This was to show God's righteousness. What's this? Propitiation, the big P word. Because God is right. Because if God doesn't punish sin, He's unjust. And we've got a problem if God is unjust. Because He's got a major flaw. Makes Him no different than any other... Any, he's, he's not God. But this was to show God's righteousness because His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. Think David, think Moses. I mean, geez, think about Abraham. Abraham was not a good dude. That's your wife, no, my sister. Just don't hurt me. Right? Moses, I want you to go. I can't talk good. No, God. You don't tell God no, by the way. Tell God no, He make it happen anyway. See Moses. You don't tell God no. David, murderer, adulterer, right? So he passed over their sins. These are people that are talked about in the book of Hebrews as faithful. So if God just lets them skate, He's unjust. But does He let them skate? No, He puts forward Jesus to satisfy His anger at David's sin and your sin and my sin. So He punishes Jesus for their sin, my sin and your sin. Verse 26, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, so God's just, He pays for sin, He punishes sin appropriately, and He is the justifier, that is, makes right, transfers the righteousness of Jesus to sinners based on faith, that He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Good, stinking news. So Jesus alone satisfies the Father's anger. That's really, really good news. We learn here about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 that He alone bears witness to Jesus. John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 
13 to 14, the Holy Spirit's job is to spotlight Jesus. He doesn't spotlight Himself. We look crazy, Baptists. I get it. We're different. But we're biblical. Our focus isn't Holy Spirit. Our focus is Jesus. Because Holy Spirit's job is to highlight Jesus. If Jesus is highlighted, Holy Spirit did His job. His job is not to manifest Himself, but to put Jesus on display. So we're all about Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's job is not to witness to Mary, not to witness to you and your good works, not to witness to your righteousness and your justice and anything you want. Holy Spirit's job is to highlight Jesus because Jesus alone saves and Jesus alone is God. So how can we obey? This is where we really where the rubber meets the road. I think it's clear biblically. I mean, if we go Scripture alone, you're not going to find any justification for anything other than Jesus. Okay? So what do we do with it? I'm just going to trust this first one will, will minister to your soul, right? And this is where, this is where faith happens, right? This is where, this is where faith happens. Rest in Christ alone. Stop working to earn salvation. Stop working to earn favor. Stop working to earn blessing. All of our salvation and subsequent provision of grace and abundance and even in want was earned by Jesus for us. Because we do salvation fairly well, but you've got to move. Listen, there's no moving past the gospel. Do not put those words in my mouth, okay? But you've got to move past your own salvation into living it out daily. Okay? You can't just keep coming. This is all Hebrews chapter 4, 5, and 6. You can't just keep coming back. Am I going to heaven? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to heaven? If you hadn't got that settled, we need to step back and work. It, favor, right? God's favor to us. Don't hear crazy Pentecostal junk. I mean, I mean the, the, the favor of God towards sons and daughters. The, the, the scriptural teaching of adoption. Right? God's favor. His blessing. We have this weird Muslim, humanistic, right? And I I love Muslims. You guys know I'm not bashing. I'm just saying I I, I deal in the Muslim world and I know Muslims well. You guys know Nadim has been here. I let a Muslim come teach in my church. So don't. And if you're like, oh my God, I'm never coming back. I didn't know they did that. Yes. Yes, we do. So because we want them to know Jesus, right? Not on Sunday morning. Didn't preach sermon. Wouldn't do that. But Saturday, and he's going to come back. So so you can come. It's be awesome. For Muslims to know Jesus, right? But, but there's this weird thing that we feel like once we get saved, we still have to perform for God to like me and give me what I need. And that somehow, if I don't do well enough, He's going to withhold from me. If I don't perform, He's going to take from me. Listen, if, if that is stuck in your psyche, I want you to hear this passage. Romans 8. 28 to 34. I just want you to hear it. Because what you need to understand, Christ alone goes beyond you getting out of hell and functions in your everyday living. Do you understand that? It's Christ alone right now. It's Christ alone tomorrow morning. Romans 8, 28 to 30. You, most of us maybe know we're in the post-Christian South, so many of us have probably chewed on Romans 8, 28 before. 
29.30 we don't like so much because that confronts our humanistic worldview. So we skip over that and persecute those people. Right? Kick them out of their jobs. And all, anyway, in all Baptist institutions. I'm sorry, stomping on toes, baby. Stomping. Romans 8, 28, 34. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why? Verse 29, there's a little four, it's purpose clause. Here's why it works for their good. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. What then shall we say to these things? I love how Paul answers. If you read Paul, you'll start having these questions. And then you'll notice he gets to your question. Because he's asked the same questions too. And here he is. So what are we to say to these things? That's hefty stuff. That's rich stuff. What are we to say to that? Here's what he says. If God is for us, you know how to complete it. Who can be against us, right? Now, this is where it really gets amazing. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's a rhetorical question. How will He not graciously give us all things? The point is, He will. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter. And what do good fathers do? They give their sons and daughters what they need. They withhold no lavish grace. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's another rhetorical question. Nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Another rhetorical question. Nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who intercedes. Who indeed is interceding for us. So therefore, rest in Christ alone. Stop working to earn your salvation. Stop working to earn favor. And stop working to earn blessing. All of it is ours abundantly in Christ. In other words, there's nothing He won't release for you that He doesn't have planned for you. Now you need to understand some qualifications on that. Number one, God may not have for all of you to be filthy rich. So just be okay with that. Because we can look back in church history and see that God didn't have good bowel patterns for Martin Luther. He didn't, he was a little hefty. And, you know, he stressed out and died early. He could have lived a lot longer if he had worked a little smarter. But, you know what? That God freely poured out on Luther everything Luther need, needed to lead that movement. He withheld nothing from Luther. Luther didn't have to earn it. Listen, here's the good news Psalm 139. All of your days were written for you before there was yet one of them. You believe that? Do you believe that? That's in your Bible. Scripture alone, right? If that's true, then at every step of your life, there's nothing that God won't pour out on you that you need. And it's not based on your effort. It's based solely on Christ's merit. Christ alone. So what Jesus did at the cross is not just save you. He purchased everything you're ever going to need. And at just the right moment, as He gave us in Abraham, there will be a ram in the thicket. Not before, not after, but at just the right moment. Because that's how God works. That's how He wired His universe. Right? So rest in that. Rest in that. 
Rest in that. And I want you to hear, that is no excuse to be slack, lazy, or sorry. Okay? Rest in Christ does not mean become sorry. Right? It means work with all your might, but work recognizing that God is the strength of the work and He is the one who makes it effectual. Does that make sense? Fan into flame your evangelistic passion for God's glory that people may be saved. We are, you guys know you've been around us long enough, we're a missions, chewing, hard place, working, working with hard people, people. That's why the city entrusted to us an elementary school in South Rome. That's why we have Restoration Rome. That's why we run those things. That's why we work in mosques. That's why we work in the places around the world we work. That's why I invite imams to come stand before you on a Saturday morning and teach you about the difference between Christianity and Islam so that you can engage and so that you are equipped and have access to places to preach the gospel. And if we say Christ alone, but we never talk about our evangelistic passion, we rip off Christ alone. Because let me just say this to you. Enough foster homes are not going to save kids. It's just not going to do it. Enough services won't save kids. The only thing that will ultimately rescue a kid's soul is if they have a life-changing encounter with the resurrected Christ. And that will come when you preach it to them. Your co-workers, your co-workers, right, who need Jesus, need you to open your mouth and quit dilly-dallying around with but generic God and generic faith and generic spirituality and talk to them about the risen, resurrected, ruling, eternal, only God of the universe, Jesus the Christ. That makes sense? And you'd be crazy, you'd be crazy surprised to find out how many people actually would like to hear that. They may not believe it, but they want you to be honest. Our friend at the mosque, they already know the gospel better than you. They can articulate it intellectually, clearly. What's interesting is how, boom, it just bounces off. So, they already know you know it, they already know you believe it, but they don't respect you because you won't say it. That's coming from the mouth of a Muslim. I'm just being honest. So my question to us is, if Christ alone is real, where is the evangelistic passion? Where is the engagement of domains where we seek to take on created order and preach the gospel to people that it may save people? Where is that? I can promise you this. We try and we try hard, but we don't succeed an awful lot. There are no, let me just be honest, there are no churches in Rome radically winning the 75 to 80,000 people who are not in church anywhere today. There's a lot of people going between churches. There's a lot of people going to here, going there, going here, going there. That's cool. This isn't cool. Go here. This is cool. Go there. That's cool. And they'll rotate. And we're on the rotation, by the way. So we go through about every third year. We're the cool place to be. I mean, that's a fact. It is just a fact. Watch, just watch. But how many unregenerate people are hearing the life transforming Romans 3, 21 to 26 and the light dawns and it rips off the blinders and they see the glory of Christ and their souls transformed? Very few. Very few. I mean, it's just a fact. 
Those are facts. Those are facts. Those are facts. You can go Barna research. You can go to Lifeway research. You can go to any research and look at the post-Christian South and the growth that happens in the post-Christian South is transfer growth and shared growth. That's it. That's a fact. And it's not because the gospel isn't powerful. It's, my hunch is we ain't telling nobody. And maybe we substitute good piety and serving. And we, and we think somehow there's enough Jesus in that that I've done my duty. And what I want you to hear is keep serving, but keep talking about Jesus. If you don't lay Jesus out in front of somebody, you haven't done evangelism. This is true. Right? So I invite you to join me in that. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm from Floyd County. I'm a Roman. Died in the wool. Pepperell, 1991. Shorter college graduate. Alright? That's a fact. I'm from here. Died in the wool. Floyd County. Okay? And I don't like Floyd Countyans. They frustrate me. You know why they frustrate me? Because I used to be one of them. And you say, you still are. A little bit, but not the same. It took living out of this state for four years to recognize the backward, broke, post-Christian state of our thought about God. Because I guarantee you, you can go to any neighborhood, knock on a door and ask questions, and they're probably most of them members of some church in town. Or they think they are because their grandmama was. And I can just about guarantee you, some of them somewhere filled out some card at some child event somewhere down the line. And there's no fruit... There's no attendance. There's no plugged in. And my question is, is that saved? Is that transformed? No. Not according to Scripture. And so what I want you to hear is there's ample opportunity for us to preach the gospel to people. It's not a county. Let me just put it in Jesus' words. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so I say, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Ask Him, and then watch Him open doors for you to go share. I get very frustrated with consuming, 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 but nobody's inviting the lost in. Go into the highways and the hedges, as Jesus said, and invite them to come into my banquet. That's what Jesus said. You remember the parable? He prepared this cool banquet and invited all these people, and then He goes to them, Are you coming? No, man, i got a wife now. And like She's kind of dogging on me, and I can't come. I just bought some dirt. I can go farm it. i got a new ox. This, that's my paraphrase, right? And then Jesus goes, none of you who are invited are going to taste my banquet. Go into the highways and the hedges and invite all those people to come in that my banquet hall may be full. That's an evangelistic call. There's a lot of people chewing on and eating, but there's not a lot of people that, that, that are in Christ and He's eating up their life. And they're alive because they're in Christ. And that zeal is there, present when nobody's looking. Nobody knows you're doing it, but you're preaching the gospel and you're faithful to bring people. Right? I'm going to be talking to you about that some in the coming weeks. Because there's going to be Sundays. I'm, listen, there's enough gospel that goes up in here on Sunday mornings. If you bring somebody, just say, come. Just come with me. I'll buy you a Bojangles chicken biscuit. Just come. And buy them a biscuit and bring them to church. They'll hear enough gospel. And what if Jesus saved them? If you're afraid to talk about Jesus, invite them somewhere where they're going to talk about Jesus and just see what happens. Worst case scenario, they never come back, think you're crazy. Guess what? They already do. Right? I'm being serious. 
We, there has to, if Christ alone is real, there has to be something that works out of us into a passion to see the mission of Jesus accomplished among all the nations. It's the fact. I didn't even read the passage. I just, Romans 10, verse 1, and then verse 9 to 15. It's the beautiful feet passage, right? Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. The Bible teaches in that passage, I'm not going to read it because we're running out of time. That if they call on the Lord, they will be saved. You just got to call on Jesus. And you ain't going to call on Jesus, it says, unless they hear. And they're not going to hear unless somebody's sent. And therefore, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? So therefore, if you go tell people good news, you got beautiful feet. Whatever that means. I know what that means. We don't have time. But you got... They're not going to believe unless you tell them. Fact. This is why we send people to hard places. This is why you go into your domain because it's people who carry the message. And there's a doctrinal theological reason behind that. Just go with the text for now, okay? Why did God say that? Because God put His image in created people and created people who've been redeemed by Jesus, image forth Christ rightly, and they go imaging forth Christ and telling His message. It's powerful. It's impactful. So, there you go. Right? So, evangelistic passion has to happen. In our multi-faith dialogue, and when you hear multi-faith, don't hear interfaith. Interfaith's a lie. All faiths are not one. They don't all teach the same thing. Multi-faith meaning you ought to be having dialogue with people. There's enough people in your town who are of another religious background. You need to be engaging them. Some of you live close to them. You see the women, ladies, in their hijab. And you may avoid them like the plague because you're afraid of them. Don't do that. Be friends. The most untouched, untapped opportunity, particularly in the Muslim world, is women. And ladies, you'll see them all over Rome. Be nice. Don't be in a hurry. Show them that Christians love and love well. Invite them into your home. Learn what they can eat and what they can't eat. And be friends with them. And introduce them to Jesus. Ripe opportunity, right? Same thing with you men. Starbucks, Tuesday evening. You go find some Muslims who want to talk theology, they're there. And come with me to the mosque sometime, I'll show you. But always in that public square, hold firm to Jesus alone. You don't have to sacrifice Jesus to be friends. They already know. Just say it. Be kind, be nice, right? Peter addresses that, right? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? And then finally, I got more there, but we're out of time. So finally, worship hard. Worship hard. Worship hard. And watch Jesus be glorified among the nations. I said this last Sunday when we did our trip report on India. Psalm 96, verse 9 to 10. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. And then verse 10 is the transition. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Worship. We worship who and what we treasure. Whatever you treasure, you're going to worship. When we treasure Jesus alone, He will be glorified among the nations and the nations will hear. So I really firmly believe, and we, we're going to study through worship uh, in the not-too-distant future. 
when our worship gets right, our evangelism will get right. And, and, and when I say worship, I don't mean what we're about to do as a, as, as a singing manifestation of worship. That's a component of worship. Singing songs that reflect the Lord's glory and sing back to Him His praise is a component of worship. Romans 12, 1-2 defines worship. It's being a living sacrifice. So when we treasure Jesus, our evangelism and our missions will get right. We preach what we treasure. And I have a feeling there are many of us who treasure many things above Jesus. Just look at your Facebook feed. Look at your Twitter feed. Look at your checkbook. We don't have checkbooks, but look at your bank statement. We still have a checkbook. Right? And then you will know what you treasure. Take a personal inventory on the amount of time you spend doing what? You will know what you treasure. These are just facts, right? When we treasure Jesus above all things, yeah, it makes a difference. We worship what we treasure. And you will not invite people to treasure something you yourself don't treasure. But when you treasure Jesus, you got they got to know because He's the best, right? Right? You all know. What, what will I be doing this evening at 8.30? Somebody say it out loud. Falcons, you know. You know that, don't you? Because I tre- I, gum treasure it pretty hard, right? right? Who's ranked number three in the country? Georgia Bulldogs. That's right. You know what I treasure, right? It, isn't it funny? We know what we treasure. And there's nothing wrong with those things as long as they don't take spot number one. You see what I'm saying? So basically what we treasure, we're going to disciple people in. That's a fact. You'll disciple people in what you treasure. What if we treasure Jesus above all things? When our worship's right, it will display who we treasure. And when we treasure Christ, our evangelism will be right. Because Christ alone is a reality, y'all. Don't wait until we stand before Him at the final day and look back and go, Lord, thank You for Your mercy. I wish I had done it different. Let's start today. Let's get our worship on. Get our evangelism on. Glorify Jesus, watch Him be honored. It'll be a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Thank you, for, thank You for Christ alone. Thank You for the precious gift today of me not having to earn Your favor or Your blessing. But it's freely given because of Christ and all He's done for me. I receive that fresh today, Lord. That's a good word for my soul and it's been good for me this week to study that been a rough couple of months personally Lord you know what's going on in my heart and my soul you know me you know me cold and Lord it was just good to read that Romans passage and Lord I don't have to I don't have to earn your favor I don't have to earn your blessing all of it is already mine in Christ so Lord that's just if for nobody else that was for me this week and I received that and Lord, I pray that you'd work that into our souls. you work that into the lives of your people. God, I pray you bring forth praise from the lips of your people this morning. Holy Spirit, make that happen. We trust you to pull that off this morning. So would you do that? So as we sing to you, be glorified, be exalted, mobilize us to our workplaces, to the nations.
And Lord, I pray you go before us and begin to work on those people who need to know Jesus. And you draw them to yourself. You give them, through abundant grace, faith, that they may repent and believe as we preach the good news to them.